I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. Hello, I'm here with Mike Hennessy today. Uh, nice to see you, Mike. Nice to see you. <laughs> Uh, now, Mike, uh, you'll hear immediately, uh, is, in, is, is from England. He's actually in England at the moment. Uh, we're both in lockdown, so thank goodness for Zoom. Um, and actually, I discovered in our uh, correspondence, we both come from close to Liverpool. I'm a woolly back coming from across the Mersey. And uh, anybody who wants to know what that is, you can ask me later, is what I would say. Uh, but what we're here to talk about is... Um, uh, Pontifex University Press is about to publish another collection of essays by Father Vincent McNabb. And we were looking for somebody to write a forward to this, and my colleague Charlie Deist noticed that these essays on McNabb were appearing on the Belloc website. I, th I think it's the Belloc Society website. I think that's where we saw them, written by Mike in England and so we just approached him and said would you be interested in writing a forward to this collection of essays. Uh, we were intrigued not just by what you were writing but also that it was clear you had an interest in Belloc and so we thought that, that would be a, a very interesting connection. Um, so we wrote and asked and Mike agreed and so wrote a terrific forward to the book. So what I, I'd like to uh, you to do first, Mike, is just tell us a little bit about your, yourself and your faith and your general interest, how that impacts upon your general interest in Belloc and McNabb. And then what we'll do, we'll get on to what it is about the book that's inter interested you particularly. So tell us about... Yeah, no, <laughs> very happy to help. Um, uh, in, in a sense, I'm uh, born and raised a, a Catholic up in Liverpool, as you mentioned, up in the northwest yeah. of England. Um, and my parents had a very strong sense of, of history. And they loved the stories of the martyrs and we visited lots of historical monuments as a child. And I was always conscious as I was growing up and I ended up reading history at university that there was this chap called Belloc who was a famous Catholic historian. And it was Belloc in a sense I fell in love with first as an author. Um, I remember the, the muse sort of striking me in the Didcot station, which is this very dreary station midway between sort of Oxford and Reading, when I was a young man, maybe just 19 years old, and the personality of Belloc and what he wrote sort of washed over me, and I felt myself quite captivated by him. Reading about him, and then, of course, reading about the people who he refers to or are referred to in biographies about him, so G.K. Chesterton, and one of the prominent people, of course, who came across in, in that biography of Belloc, uh, the Robert Spate biography, the big book, was, of course, Father McNabb. And it was a name I'd sort of come across in my, in my reading and my, uh, uh, my sort of studies about the personality of Belloc. And uh, I just decided I want to pursue it more, but it was definitely difficult to get hold of any of his books. Um, anyway, I married in the early 20s, uh, lived in North London, reading a lot of Belloc, collecting a lot of Belloc and Chesterton. And it was not until we were moving out of London, our family was growing and we're now based outside London in Reading, um, that I managed to get hold of a couple of his books. And um, I'm, as it happens, an official, but I work in the House of, Houses of Parliament in the House of Commons as a parliamentary official. And so I was quite captivated as well by some of the political sides of Belloc. He was actually a member mm. of Parliament for a while. Oh, yeah. It was in that context, that political context, that he actually first came across Vincent McNabb, who was very concerned about the condition of the working class. Right. And right. as a father uh, of, of at that time young children, 
uh, as someone who had to move out of London because I couldn't afford the property prices, as someone who was observing the political scene in Westminster, that sort of element of the, the very strong and devout faith of, of McNabb, the relationship with Belloc, whom I loved and revered, and some of the insights he gave into the economic and social problems of his day, many of which still perdure to this day, really became a focus for my interest. And so I started to read more and then actually to write some about him. Right. So this uh, request to write the foreword uh, landed in your yes. inbox. And what appealed about it? Uh, what, well, to be absolutely frank, what really appealed was that I hadn't actually written anything about McNabb for a number of years. Okay. Um, I'd written two or three quite long articles about him. Um, I'd actually been planning to write a biography of him going back 15 or 20 years. I got in touch with the Dominican archivist, Father B. Bailey, who's now sadly uh, passed away in this country in order to visit the Dominican archive and pick up some of the correspondence they have, which belonged to Father McNabb. Mm. And then just because life is very busy, all sorts of other things got in the way. Other, other characters who roamed the sort of the, the world of the 20s, 30s and 40s began to fascinate me as well. I sort of some a little bit to one side. Um, I gave a talk about him uh, in 2016 and I had to revisit some of my older writings and sort of he was prominent again in my mind in a different way. There were other elements of him that I was drawn to more than I had been when I first read him. But again, he's sort of uh, busyness of life, two or three years. I've not really gone near a lot of his writings. I pick them up from time to time, especially some of his scriptural meditations during Lent. I mm. always look at those. And so when that email dropped in, I thought, this is my chance to revisit this man and to sort of go back and to read him again and to look again at what he contributed to, to if you like, the Catholic and the broader English literary and uh, intellectual scene. And, and also, of course, he was, a, he was a man of faith. He worked amongst the poor. So uh, yes. there was an awful lot in terms of what he did charitably um, for the people of London in particular. Um, but to go back and, and to sort of look at that again, uh, in a new light as an older man myself, now with my children um, more grown than they were then. So it was, it was, a, it was a godsend in a way. Well, that's wonderful. Um, the, just so that um, those who are listening are aware, the, the book is called The Wayside, A Priest's Gleanings, and it's a series of short essays. And the way that it struck me when I was writing it is that uh, Father McNabb, some of his writing is pretty technical and difficult, I would say. I mean, he, um, he has this reputation of being linked to the land movement, and so you feel as though you ought to be able to just read him like you can Belloc. Um, but it, it, he is a, a serious uh, philosopher and theologian, and when he's writing for others, uh, for his peers, should we say, um, it, it's difficult reading. Mm. This has a collection of very personal reflections that are, that are different, and they're early essays, and um, you noted that in your foreword. I'm just going to quote the sen this, this sentence and just ask you to comment on it. So this is what Michael wrote, which I thought was a, a beautiful thing to write about Father McNabb. Uh, McNabb wasn't as great a writer as he was a thinker, and he wasn't a great, as great a thinker as he was a lover of God. Now, um, would that anyone would say something like that about either of us at, at some point in the future. Indeed. Um, but I think it's true. And uh, you mentioned two stories in particular which bring out that side of his character, and, and it struck me as well. So perhaps if, if you can just talk about that and any others that uh, highlight this aspect of his personality and his ch personal charity, I think. 
I think it's, it's a fascinating volume that you've chosen. Um, it's, it gives, I think, the best representation of the breadth of the, the things that he was writing about and the things that he was concerned about. And indeed, he was uh, a very, very gifted theologian. He had his lecturate in sacred theology and his master of sacred theology from Louvain University. Uh, he was supposed to be the second brightest mind of his generation in the Dominican province in England. Um, and a lot of what he wrote was technical, and he can continue to write quite technical theological writings for, for Blackfriars magazine. But he wrote an awful lot of other things as well. He, he wrote some beautiful, limpid scriptural studies. He wrote often articles, even for the, the secular press uh, in London in the 1920s and 30s, talking in very simple terms about the social issues and the political issues of the day. And what motivated him fundamentally in everything that he did, whether it was the, the high exegesis and the philosophical work that he was doing, or the more simple work, was, was a profound love for our blessed Lord and a love for his fellow man. And those articles I touch on in the foreword, um, one about uh, a nonconformist, eld an elderly woman who had been, I think, a weaver, uh, Jan uh, Jane Seedcombe. Uh, another about a, a, an Irish convict, Patrick Glennon, mm. uh, who's been locked up again and again and again, and an alcoholic, um, are full of an enormous love for the people around him, which is there because of his love of Almighty God. And that's what moved me most when I was reading this collection. Uh, again, I've read it a number of times before. I've got a, a crusty old first edition. And um, when I first read it, I was drawn to some of his other essays, some of the more technical ones. He has in here a, a critique of Harnack's um, work on miracles. And he has another critique on, on Hume, uh, quite a philosophical critique of Hume. He writes a couple of historical essays in here, one about uh, Rome at the time of the pagans, another about Rome at the time of the Christians. There's even a little sort of... Um, sidelight on post-impressionism in this yes. book but it was when he was writing about individuals here that i was really moved um there's actually another one towards the end of the book and it's written about a conversation he has with someone he doesn't name who isn't of the household of the faith but is clearly a christian and he is so touched by her tender love for our lord jesus christ that he begins to think if only i could even approach that level of of devotion towards our blessed lord I would, be, I would be so pleased if I could even approach only half that way to where this other woman, this old woman he meets, has got to. And it's that humility within him. He was very clear about the certainties of the faith, and he was clear that there is really one household of the faith to which we should try and draw everybody else. But it never meant that he didn't see in other people the light of our blessed Lord. Mm. Um, and that's one of the, the lovely things about this. Um, as he got older, this book came out in 1915, and some of the essays date back sort of five or ten years before that. As he got older, he was writing more controversially. He was writing more on matters to do with uh, the condition of the working classes, some political elements, back to the land essays, which he's quite famous for, distributism. Mm. Um, and it's in these earlier ones that you can actually see the personality of him developing and growing. And at the heart of that, as I say, this glowing love for our blessed Lord and all the people around him. And that's what, each time I go back to him, as I say, I return to him from time to time, I, I catch something else about his personality that really strikes me. And I think they were the things that most drew me to this volume this time around. Yes, in that description of the alcoholic uh, prisoner, um, it is amazing reading it. First of all, he describes his contact with the prisoner and how, um, for all, clearly he'd done something wrong to be there. He wasn't trying to excuse that, but... He'd been on the receiving end of injustice in his life. Yes. And he mm -hmm. remarks on his 
capacity for forgiveness and his lack of resentment in describing this. And then finishes with a description of going in and the prisoner wasn't there. Presumably, I think he died. I think. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the prisoner who was in the cell said, oh, that guy was a saint, <laughs> talking about the, 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 the alcoholic prisoner in the prison. Um, as you say, touching and just revealing, um, I think, not only about his relationship with the prisoner, but the fact that when he met this stranger going in, immediately there's this, you can, there must be a connection there for, yeah. for this guy to open up and want to say something like that to him. Um, as you say, really uh, interesting insights into his personality. Um, I, I'm just curious, but I'll just say for a moment, those who are listening, I'm here with Mike Hennessy, and we're discussing um, a book of essays, which uh, Pontifex University Press is uh, about to release called uh, the Wayside, A Priest's Gleanings, a series of essays by Father Vincent McNabb. If you want to get the book, it's uh, on uh, thewayofbeauty.org forward slash books. Uh, thewayofbeauty.org forward slash books. Um, I wonder, just in the light of what, what we've been saying about Father McNabb himself, if um, perhaps bearing that in mind, could you enlarge a little bit on his relationship with Belloc? And do, do you know much about his contact with him and the influence he, he had on him at all? Yes, it's, it's quite a fascinating story and, uh, and partly sad. Um, yeah. One of the reasons I was drawn to McNabb was, as I say, reading a biography of Belloc. And um, almost the last thing that Belloc committed to writing um, in 1943 was something that was printed in Blackfriars after the death of Father McNabb, in which he effectively referred to him as one of the greatest men he had ever known and one of the holiest men he had ever known. And that was one of the things that stimulated my interest initially. Mm. And one of the reasons for that was that he'd met McNabb for the first time quite some time ago, 30 years before in 1913. They both shared a stand at a, a Catholic political gathering. Um, socialism was making inroads into the Catholic working classes sort of political thinking. And they were both opposed to, to socialism, but they saw within it many things that the Catholic Church had already expressed um, in the encyclical of Pope Leo XIII, uh, Rerum Novarum, mm. and they were keen to try and um, find a place for that, if you like, within political movements of the day. Um, Belloc invited McNabb back to his home in Kingsland in, in Sussex, um, where he met his wife and his family. Um, but only a few months later, uh, Belloc sadly lost his wife, uh, Elodie Belloc, at quite an early age, they had five children, um, and she died uh, of a sudden illness uh, early in 1914, just before um, the outbreak of the First War. And McNabb was summoned from, from London. So he spent those very, very difficult days for Hilaire Belloc, with Belloc, walking in his garden. And that's what's reflected upon in this piece by Belloc that Belloc wrote in 1943 after the death of McNabb. He said that McNabb had had saved him from a loss of faith, had saved him from despair, had accompanied him in the darkest hours and darkest days of his life, just after the death of his wife. Um, and after that, 1914, um, McNabb would come each Easter and each Christmas and would offer mass in Belloc's chapel in their house in, in Kingsland, and they became very, very close friends. Um, after 1919, um, McNabb had to move to London. He became the, the prior of St. Dominic's Priory up in northeast East London. Uh, and 
after that they didn't meet as often but they did still meet and they corresponded and a lot of the correspondence from McNabb to Belloc and Belloc to McNabb survives and it's very touching um Eleanor Belloc who's uh was uh, Hilaire Belloc's daughter um said that Vincent McNabb was almost the only man Belloc would listen to Belloc was terribly headstrong and had very strong opinions on almost any subject but he had a reverence for Father McNabb um, when he Father McNabb came to stay Belloc would would, would tone down his drinking a little. He was always fond of taking at least two or three good bottles of red after dinner, and he wouldn't. And almost out of respect for the man's cloth, and he would listen to him. Um, and in fact, Belloc had a stroke in 1942. This is just before McNabb died. And McNabb hurried down from London. This is all those years later, they were still very close friends. Mm. And, <laughs> and McNabb assisted at, at Belloc's side when people thought that Belloc was going to die in 1942. He recovered, and of course, eventually wrote this beautiful piece uh, in Blackfriars about McNabb when McNabb himself perished a year later. They stimulated each other. They were very close friends. I think he was terribly important to Hilaire Belloc. Uh, he was this authoritative, saintly contact that he had had outside the literary scene and the political scene. He was a touchstone for Belloc's faith in many ways. Um, and, and for McNabb, I think it just gave him the opportunity to, to talk on terms about all sorts of things that they were both interested in both in terms of, of, of politics, social conditions, um, economics, but also in terms of the faith and art and various other things. So they were, they were really close, really tight-knit. And that, I think, is, is a lovely testimony to, to each of them. Um, there's one fascinating little story, which is mm. that um, mm. Belloc's neighbour in Sussex was a famous poet, Wilfred Blunt, Wilfred Scowan Blunt. And he'd uh, been born and brought up a Catholic, but had lived a rather licentious life. Um, and he was on his deathbed. And he summoned Belloc and said to Belloc, I think I want a priest by my side. And Belloc actually sent for McNabb, who came and assisted at the, at the, uh, the dying bedside of, of Wilfred Blunt and, and brought him, reconciled him to the church. Mm. And so it was more than just conversation. It was more than just friendship. It actually had a practical outcome uh, for some of those souls who were touched by their friendship, which I think was really important to it. Yes, um, that's, that's interesting. Um, could you tell us a, a little more about the, the is it the Belloc Society and your involvement with that and uh, yes uh, and um, your interest in in Belloc and then we'll come back to McNabb and talk about a few yeah. more of the, the essays again. I'm yeah. currently the chair of the Belloc Society, although we're, we're a relatively quiescent organisation, especially now under this um, under the COVID nineteen sort of regime. <laughs> um, but I've been involved with the Belloc Society for since about 1996 1997, and it's come and gone. And um, the reason for my involvement is in a, I've read more Belloc than almost anybody else. At an early age, as I mentioned before, in Didcot Station of all places, something touched my soul in terms of what he was writing. Um, there's a strength to his personality, and there's a strength to his faith. He, he almost abandoned his faith at one point. There was a brief moment of wavering. And, but came back to it and pursued it. He was a, a great controversialist and a, and a, and a wonderful orator. Uh, he flirted with politics. Uh, he spent most of his life writing over 153 books, and I've got about 142 of them on the shelf behind me. Um, I also think he's one of the writers of the most, one of the most beautiful writers of English of the 20th century. I know there's a few who can claim that as well. Some people say that Evelyn War is one of the greatest stylists. Uh, of the 20th century. Ronald Knox is obviously a superb stylist in many ways. Um, but Belloc wrote beautifully, and he wrote on so many different subjects and with so many different voices. Um, he was enormously capable of turning from sardonic humour 
to, to the most sort of beautiful uh, explanation of, of the aging of the soul and the aging of the spirit. He was a man full of melancholy, enormous humor, uproarious spirits, a great drinker, a mm. sailor, would often spend time alone on a boat at night watching the stars and reciting uh, the Iliad to himself in Greek. And a loner after his wife died, spent a lot of time, I think, still mourning his wife and his devotion to his wife was, 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 was very, very great. He never slept in the same room again after she died. He would walk past her door every evening to another room and outside the door he would kneel down, he would kiss the wood of the door and he would offer some prayers for the repose of the soul of his wife before going to his own room. Um, there's an awful lot about him. He's a, he's a, he's a um, multifaceted individual and he still, he still fascinates me. And the Bellot Society now is, um, is devoted to some of the lighter elements of the man's life, uh, to his verse, uh, to his singing, to his poetry. Um, uh, one of his great poems, of course, is uh, the heroic poem in praise of wine. Um, I'm quite fond of a, a drop of wine myself. I used to actually work briefly in the wine industry here in, uh, in the UK. And um, that poem is, a, is a, again, a fascinating exposition of the fact that he had a, a background in the classics. He'd read history. He was obviously a, a great uh, verse stylist. Um, it's quite a controversial work. It attacks the water drinkers. Um, uh, it's full of history and, and it's like a travelogue across the Mediterranean and all the places where, where vines grow. But it ends with a beautiful um, exposition of his deep, profound faith in our blessed Lord and in the blessed sacrament, um, the wine that is made, the blood of Christ, if you like. And so it's, yeah. again, it covers everything. Um, and few writers can do that with such panache as Belloc. Well, I'm, I'm going to give my introduction to Belloc. Um, time not unlike this, so th th this is, we're going back now to the early 70s, the miners' strike, and uh, when Ted Heath was Prime Minister, three-day week, and you had power cuts for, for two days in the week. And so everyone bought candles. There was a rush on candles, yes. I remember. <laughs> I don't know how old you were at this stage. I was born in 62, so I was... Um, I can't remember exactly when, the, about 10, something yeah. like that. Um, and so what happened is my dad went down to the library. We had cold meats and cheese. And, and I remember my mum getting this meal ready because we weren't going to be able to cook uh, by candlelight. And my da dad went down to the library and got a book of cautionary tales by Hilaire oh, yeah. Belloc. And I'd never heard these before. I, I'm the oldest of four. And my sister, who was the youngest, um, is just five years younger. So there's four of us very close together. And I was absolutely captivated by, by these. And especially um, there was a boy whose name was Jim, whose friends were very kind to him. And I could, I, I, ever since that, I always wondered who this uh, person was who wrote these incredibly witty uh, verse uh, um, lines of verse um, that we were all laughing so my mum my dad and all the kids at the jokes that he made and I remember um, saying buying a book um, as an adult I thought I want to go and read these so I bought a book of Belloc's verse and went straight to the, the one about Jim who was eaten by the lion when he went to the zoo and um, the fact that that could be a funny tale is amazing. <laughs> but, um, the, but someone said to me, oh, yes, he's not really rated as, um, in terms of his verse. It, it seems uh, not great. Well, uh, what I would say is that if you're looking for something to do in the lockdown, 
you really could do a lot worse than just um, reading some of those cautionary tales by Belloc. If you have a family, they are absolutely delightful. Um, now, I'm wondering, how do the Belloc aficionados, you, you've read far more of him than I have, how is his, uh, is, is his children's verse, for example, viewed? Um, very highly. I mean, it's just been republished over here by a very okay. prominent publishing company. So it's still in circulation. I think okay. most people who know Belloc will know him because of those particular poems, the, yeah. the humorous verse that he's done. And, but I say there's so many sides to him. One of the great problems, and I often joke about this um, with Belloc Society friends, is that you can get eight or 10 or even 15 Bellocians in the same room together, terrible word, Bellocians, <laughs> and you'll find that none of them agree with each other about anything. Um, some, some are there because they love his history, some are there because they love his verse, some yeah. love the fact that he was a man of Sussex, and Sussex is very important to them in the countryside. Some are there because of his polemics and his controversial works, whether political or social. Some just love his prose writing, I'd say the beautiful harmonies, uh, the mellow tones of a cello, as, as Morris Baring once said, um, some like his novels, and some of his novels are quite political and very amusing, actually, in many ways. Um, some actually like his writings on economics. Uh, he wrote about so many different things, and if you were to say to every Balochian in a room, 15 or 20, what is his best mm. book, you would probably get 15 or 20 different answers, uh, which, is, which is a problem for a society in some respects, but it doesn't yeah. mean that everything is kept very fresh. Um, because there's never any unanimity on what made the man great. We just all agree that he is. So I, I'm just wondering, can you all unify behind the fact that you think he's better than Chesterton? Is that the... <laughs> that is one, one particular element of unity. Um, and having had an enormous affection for G.K. Chesterton as a young man, which I have to admit has waned a little, I find his style now really quite difficult to read. I don't like him as much as Bell. Paragraphs, paragraphs at a time, but pages and pages I can't, I can't be doing yeah, with that yeah, anymore. Um, the other thing that does unite Bellocians tends to be that they're, they're quite fond of a drink and a sing-along. <laughs> so socially, um, the gatherings are always, despite the elements of disagreement as to what might be his best book or the best facet of a man, we all can raise a glass together and agree that he was a great man and then have a good old right. sing-along. And that's... That's very important with these sorts of literary groups of one sort or another. Well, let's turn now again to the, the, the holy man behind the great man, if we can call it, uh, yeah. Father McNabb. Um, just tell us about any other stories or any of those essays that he wrote that just appealed to you, just to give us more insights into him and this man who had such an influence on, on Belloc. Indeed. I mean, the, as I say, the book is a, is, a, is a great conspectus of all sorts of different things that he was interested in. Um, yeah. One thing that struck me this time, and I, I've been reading some of those essays, where clearly he's, he's mixing and working amongst some of the poorer people in London, or at this time, actually, in Leicester. Um, he was in London briefly, 1908 to 1910. But wherever he went, he tended to be moving amongst uh, the poorer people. Um, he spent a lot of time with the Jews in Whitechapel in London, for example, the, the poorer Jews who lived in the East End. Um, and of course, the poor Irish working classes, whether in Liverpool or in London, again, he, he visited a lot and spent a lot of time with. Um, but he's got an, uh, an essay towards the end of The Wayside called The Riches of Ritual. And he talks about the importance of magnificence in, and beauty in liturgy and in worship. And this struck me very much coming to it again this time. I'd just been reading a few uh, years before um, 
a book I've not read since I was a student, which was a biography of the Curé d'Art, um, who mm -hmm. served in a very poor parish in France, um, but who never wanted to stint in terms of vestments uh, and the way that the church was fitted out in order to befit the sacred liturgy. He thought it was a very, very important thing, especially in a sense for, for the poor people who lived in such drab surroundings that for them, the opportunity to participate in the liturgy uh, with the beauty attendant upon it was actually something that would raise them up out of their condition and point their minds and their hearts towards Almighty God. And so in my mind, um, and of course I think Father McNabb was a very holy man, I was sort of thinking about him and thinking of the Curie of Ars at the same time and how well he explains in this short essay the importance of art itself being an offering that we can make to God and how we must make the most glorious offering of the most glorious art to God. It's, it's not, it's, it's the least that is required, if you like, for us to be able to worship him well, is to worship with all that we can give him, both within our own hearts, but what we can make with our own hands, um, whether it's vestments or the architecture, whether it's the, it's the, the singing, the chant, uh, however we offer, it's very important to do that for God. And I thought that's an interesting thing because there's a lot of argumentation and um, these mm. days about how it's important maybe to spend the money instead of spending it on expensive uh, vestments or an expensive church to spend it on the poor but he knew the importance of it for the poor the importance of the magnificence of the liturgy also for the sake of almighty god um and and I, that, that just made me think again about about how we offer the liturgy and how we we pray and how we worship and how central of course that was to his life as a, as a priest and as a friar yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's the first essay that i read the riches of ritual i've got an interest in liturgy um and I was fascinated by that argument. And also, uh, so the, the first thing that I thought about was that um, his stressing that the, this grandeur, which is properly ordered, you know, directing us to, to God, um, is there for the poor as well as the rich. There tends to be this assumption that somehow it's denied. Yes. It's there for all of us. We can all go into church and enjoy this. And it might be the only chance that people get to see such beauty actually properly ordered to what beauty is for in a, in a sense um, and then uh, the other argument I, I thought in connection with that is that um, even if your concern is purely material and you don't believe in that the, it inspires people to charity and to mm. love uh, much of that can't be measured in material terms anyway but so much of it can I mean it, it, there's a superabundance uh, made available in a sense that uh, wealth is created uh, by economic activity but the desire to um, to do so uh, for the good of others is more likely to be um, inspired by seeing that beauty in the church mm -hmm. and so I, I think it more than pays for itself anyway but not that that's the principal argument yes. um, yeah uh, and as you say it, it's there as an inspiration to the poor the other thing that struck me about that uh, that essay was he was trying to um, highlight how ritual is important, how it's natural to us. Mm. And he used the example of the evening meal as a ritual that still remained. And you think, gosh, that, that's, uh, <laughs> if only that was present. Times have changed. Yeah, yes. Uh, and then I started to think, well, what is the, what is the modern equivalent? If, the, if, if it is natural to us to 
uh, shall we say, worship, we all worship, but we just, it's just a question of whether we worship God or lesser gods with a small g. Um, here we are in a time where um, certainly there's some basis to what we're all doing, we're, we're in lockdown, but there's an aspect of sort of ritual purity, isn't there, in, in the way that this is approached. Mm. Um, and so I, I was just, I, I just think it would be an interesting exercise for each of us just to look at our lives and say, okay, where is the ritual in my life? Because um, I don't believe that you can scrap it altogether. If you get rid of the evening meal, mm. which is actually a fine ritual because it points to the Eucharist, doesn't it? That, yeah, that's um, right. And it's just a step removed. Whereas I wonder whether my rituals are taking me in all sorts of directions. And it made me think there's a, there's a moment for self-reflection. Um, the fact yeah. that the example that he cited wouldn't apply so well today. Um, so yeah, uh, right. No, I, I, go on. Yeah, carry on. Spit. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, the, the situation at the moment is interesting because so many people's normal rituals have been shattered. Yeah. So they're all they are all running around to try and find something else to replace them with. And if one looks at what the newspapers are reporting, all the television programs, it's all about people trying to find a different way of doing things that they can then ease themselves into and repeat. Because by doing this, first of all, it's quite comfortable to find a ritual that suits you. But the other thing is it's it's self-forgetful. If you get used to doing things in a certain patterned way, it allows your mind to to focus on a particularly important elements of it. Say the, the priest at mass following a ritual in order to be able to forget parts of what he is and focus on the thing that he does that he's doing the action that he has at the altar which is very important but in more simple ways it just allows people to to rest and i think there's a certain amount of rest in ritual which is really important that's having to redo things again and again and exhaust ourselves by finding new ways always to do the same thing we can actually find some rest and some room for contemplation on whatever level yeah. in terms of doing something repeated yes so it's yeah as, and as you say it's not to say that any of these are necessarily bad things but yeah. if they are the end then that's the problem it, when they're ordered to the highest ritual which is what father McNabb was directing us to in that essay then that's it that is a rich life indeed yes i indeed. would say um well, Mike, that, that's terrific. Is there anything you want to add before, before we finish? I, I, I want to thank you very much for your insights and, and your, the forward, which is beautiful. Um, so I'll just no, I'll finish by just sort of recapping where people can find the book. But any closing thoughts at all? Um, I think we've touched upon this quite a bit. It, the importance of, of people to Father McNabb, the importance of um, being able to be touched by the actions of another soul. And there's just one little story I'd like to, to leave you with. He was um, at a funeral. He was officiating as priest at a funeral um, of a young child who had died. And the mother of the child, who was a Catholic, had died a number of years earlier. And so the only person left in the family was actually um, the husband, the father of the child who just died, who wasn't himself a Catholic and was a working man from a poor quarter of London. And they got to the, uh, to the graveyard and the, the poor child was interred and the rain started to come down. And Father McNabb was conscious of uh, the poverty of the family and also how stricken the husband and father was, having lost first of all his wife and now his only child, his daughter. Um, and 
the poor man scrabbled around in his pockets as the rain came down heavier and heavier and tried to thrust some money that he'd got together, pennies, a collection of pennies into Father McNabb's hand and said, you must take a taxi, you must take a taxi back to the Priory, you mustn't walk in this terrible weather, it's very important for you to get back, you might be ill. And Father McNabb knew that this poor man himself had an even longer walk back to the tenement block in East London where he lived and would now live alone. And He was so touched by that instance of charity from someone, again, not of the household of the faith, but there in the graveyard, he got on his knees in front of this poor man and said, I, I, I cannot possibly take it. I cannot possibly take it. And the man was insistent. And in the end, McNabb realized it was his own pride that was refusing to take it. And so he relented and he took the money and he took the taxi back and he thought of the man walking back in, in the rain to his tenement, empty tenement flat in East London. And that stayed with him in a way. He that the touching charity of someone, not a Catholic, to a priest who he barely knew, who had officiated in a language that was unfamiliar to him, as an important event in his life is his daughter's funeral. And it was that sort of mark that was left on the soul of McNabb by other people, <laughs> and which he likewise made upon the soul of others whom he met, that remains with me all through this. It's a, it's a vein running through so many of his writings. Is this touching charity that, as you said earlier, the fact that he could wander into any room and people would know him for what he was, whether it was a drawing room, a salon of, of literary greats somewhere in a posh part of London in 1910, 1915, when he did mix and mingle with quite a lot of the literary giants of the day, or it was into a, a, a poor housing block somewhere else, whether it was Leicester or London, and people knew him for what he was and he never changed. Uh, and he allowed himself to be touched by the charity of others. And that made him want to be charitable to much more for the sake of them and, and for our Lord Jesus Christ. And that was very important to him. And his, his life is full of those little stories. There's lots of them dotted around in various biographical things that have been written about him. And they always move me because underneath the sometimes, he could be quite stern. He was obviously a very deep thinker. Um, he was immensely lucid. And people were sometimes frightened by his intellect. Um, but there was a kindliness and a warmth in there, um, which sometimes you can lose sight of. Sometimes it's easy to forget how human a person can be underneath their writings. So say he wasn't necessarily a great writer, but underlying his writings, he was a great lover of our Lord Jesus yeah. Christ. And that, to me, is the key thing I return to him for time and time again. That's wonderful. That's uh, beautiful. Thank you. I've been talking to Mike Hennessy, um, and we've been talking about Father Vincent McNabb. Mike wrote the foreword to this uh, published uh, recently, or soon to be published, book of essays called The Wayside of Priest Gleanings, published by Pontifex University Press, available at thewayofbeauty.org forward slash books. Mike, I want to say thank you very much. It's been a fascinating uh, conversation. I appreciate your time. No, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you're interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.